This yes. is hell. Putting people before profits since 1996, which turns out to be a really dumb business model. This is hell, and if you want to help us out with our idiotic business model, all you have to do is go to thisishell.com and click on support and see the numerous ways you can support completely listener-supported This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, how's your week starting off so far? Uh, it was pretty good when I got it. Uh, this message from an Instagram user. Hey, Alex, not sure you have time for this, but I made this track for anyone out there going to work going on an errand, going for a walk, going anywhere in this dark time. May it bring you some sense of togetherness in a time where we are torn apart. May you find a sense of undefeated despair. I made it inspired by Chuck's monologue. I'm going to end the song with it, or end uh, the show with this song uh, from listener Celestino, C-E-L-E-S-T-I-N-O dot bandcamp.com. Then he wrote, "You got this is the part that really made my day. That was a nice thing first of all, but then this part, you guys are really suck gems. I know, <laughs> I know it's hard, but thank you so much. LOL. Sorry, effing typo, I'm drunk. You guys are really such gems. I know it's hard, but thank you so much. But also, suck gems. <laughs> uh, it, it made, that made my day. You know what made my day on Saturday? A listener, Susan, uh, emailed me, telling me, uh, emailed us, saying, uh, uh, here's what I do while I listen to the radio show. I make crumpets. And there was a picture of some yeah, crumpets. Yeah, I saw that. Susan, uh, let me see them little pockets. I know. What are the little holes in a crumpet called? There's probably a term. Ronaldo's probably pulling his hair out about this. I bet it's called a dimple. Oh, good choice. I'll uh, look that up. Today, will we, can we, and should we go back to whatever normal was before the global pandemic? Is it even possible to recreate a time that has passed? President Trump seems to think so with his Make America Great Again campaign slogan, which promises to take us back to the good old days of the 1990s after communism had been defeated, capitalism reigned supreme, and it seemed nothing would ever change again and everybody was getting rich. Meanwhile, Trump's apparent opponent in this November's presidential election, Joe Biden, wants to return us to a different past the rollicking time of the Obama administration following the financial collapse of 2007 and 2008, when the stock market was always going up, unemployment was always going down, and you could get legislation that embraces public-private partnerships in seeking market solutions for all life's problems, including health care. But why go back to the old normal that led us to this new normal of sheltering in place, wearing medical face masks and gloves in public, and at all times being six feet from one another? What we need if we are going to survive the next crisis of capitalism, and there will be another crisis, and soon, is something other than what we did in the past, something other than what the two candidates are offering. Now the right has a plan, and it's their old chestnut of fascism that will come and save the day for us, but definitely not for them, whoever they are, and you better bet there's going to be a they, because under fascism, it only thrives through demonizing whatever is determined to be the other. The left, on the other hand, apparently doesn't have much of a plan, and they better come up with one quick, or again, fascism will consider what our future has in store for us in a few. When we talk to Remy Debs Bruno and Medway Baker, co-authors of the Cosmonaut Magazine article, The End of the end of history, COVID-19, and 21st century fascism. You can find their article at cosmonaut.blog. De- uh, Remy sorry, is a freelance journalist and copy editor and is also an organizer for Target Workers Unite. Medway is a writer and editor at Cosmonaut Magazine. Medway is also a member of Socialist Action 
Canada and the New Democratic Party's, or NDP's, Socialist Caucus. You can follow Medway on Twitter at MidwayMedway. Last week's question from hell is, but what about the landlords? But what about the landlords? The person with our favorite answer to last week's question wins 10 This Is Hell subvertising stickers so you too can subvert outdoor advertising with the words, This Is Hell. As we're all living in hell right now, what better time to remind others that, yes, this is hell. You can still leave your answer to last week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, because we will be announcing the winner after our guest. You can also direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to either of us, chuck at thisishell.com, alex at thisishell.com. But again, you must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner, that's after today's guest. Alex, do you have even more of the answers to last week's question from hell? Hold on, I'm looking up if they call crumpet holes anything besides crumpet holes. It doesn't <laughs> look like they do. I think they just call holes. Crolls, maybe? I don't know. Aaron D. says they get to explain to their banks that they can't pay their mortgage because their tenants didn't pay them this month. It's all perfectly legal. <laughs> Gorilla G. says, oh, sorry. Uh, let me scroll up a little bit. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Here goes the new ones. Joshua J. says, oh, question. But what about the landlords? But what about the landlords? Joshua J. says, cement, duct tape, and bodies of water. Oh, Jesus. Bradley R. says, your unemployment number is 11,386,547. Now serving number three. <laughs> I do like that. Neil C. says, how's a one-time $1,200? Dennis H. posted a uh, gif of Chairman Mao shooting uh, rainbows out of his eyes. <laughs> I didn't really get that either. Bodan G. says... What is this painting? And it's a painting on Wikipedia, Wikimedia Commons that I just found when I just typed in landlord and didn't seem as anti-Semitic as all the other ones. <laughs> uh, Eric T says, F. Fishman. Don't know who that is. Probably his landlord. Yeah. Uh, Nick E writes, Dark and lonely on the summer night, kill my landlord, kill my landlord. Watchdog barking, do he bite? Kill my landlord, kill my landlord. <laughs> Slip in his window, break his neck, then his house I start to wreck. Got no reason, what the heck? Kill my landlord, kill my landlord. Hmm. I don't know if that's an original composition. I'm, I'm doubting it is. It sounds vaguely familiar. Stephen S. says they can go to Taiwan. No, they could. Shane M. says eventually they will all be BlackRock. <laughs> Lisa M.P. says, but, but, they provide an essential service. And finally, Daniel C. says, well, they can join our neighborhood mutual aid group. Oh, wait, I send my rent checks to an address out of state. <laughs> Alex will have more of your answers to last week's question mail following our guest again email us your answer to chuck at this is hell.com or alex at this is hell.com or post them on our Facebook page or DM us via Twitter at this is hell radio by the end of today's live stream this is not the media this is hell <sighs> yesterday I am sad to report there was a tragedy in my family and it could not have happened at a worse time with all the daily challenges we live with under the virus, all the safety protocols we should be taking and all the ones we think we need to also do in order to stay alive without having a tube shoved down our throats so a machine can pump oxygen directly into our lungs. The last thing we needed or anyone needs right now is something awful like what happened to us yesterday to happen to them. And to be honest, we're kind of at a loss as far as what we should do about the passing of an integral part of our household. So with a heavy heart, I'm here to report to you to announce the passing of, I don't know how to put this, so I'm just going to come out and say it. Our microwave oven died. I know it seems insignificant in the larger picture of the tragedy we see and hear every day when we go online, look at our phones, or heaven forbid, turn on a TV or radio. But our microwave oven, which had done its duty, 
diligently for 15 years has become nothing more than a large, heavy clock and timer that takes up far too much counter space in our kitchen. Its primary function to heat stuff up is no longer achievable, and it saddens and sickens all of us. Not that we really needed a microwave anymore. I mean, who does? All it was in the old new normal before the virus was a machine that heated up water in coffee cups to make the vessel hot enough to retain the brew's heat for more than only a couple minutes. We also used it to heat up milk that we put in our coffee because cold milk and hot coffee makes hot coffee merely warm, and there's nothing quite as delicious as hot coffee. So that's all our microwave really was anymore. Actually, I think my girlfriend heated up the cat's food in it too, but I'm not involved in the whole cat feeding process. I'm really not too sure what's going on there. Sure, we needed a microwave oven before the virus hit, but do we need it now in this new normal? And will we need it in the next new normal when we are allowed to go outside again, allowed to go to bars and restaurants again, allowed to be within six feet of other human beings again? In that next new normal, will we need a microwave. Will we want that to be a normal where microwaves are needed? It's not like we heated up food in that thing. I I don't know what microwaves do to food, but whatever it is, it makes food god-awful. Sure, it's warmed up, it's heated, but it's usually some kind of soggy or chewy mess that only vaguely resembles the food that would have come out of a more conventional oven that resembles what it looks like on the box. Microwave popcorn tastes like a million different chemicals. You gotta wonder if you're eating the popcorn or the foil bag it was popped in. I've always been suspicious of the microwave oven, thinking that someday a study will come out showing how it gave us all cancer, caused 5G, which caused COVID-19. I don't know, but I always figured right when everyone stopped using microwave ovens, we would suddenly learn they weren't so great for us after all, but it's too late now. We're all already radiated. Think about the way it was invented. Some scientist is screwing around with radar. Suddenly he realizes the chocolate bar in his pocket is melted, which makes him think, hey, what a great way to heat up food, and not, holy shit, invisible waves just nuked my candy, OMG, I bet I have cancer, I'm getting the fuck out of here. Sure, we could run out and get a new microwave, but who wants to go to an appliance store while we're in the midst of a global pandemic? I know I don't want to be shopping for a machine that does nothing more than heat up my coffee cup. We even instinctively decided to go buy one before we wondered if we actually needed a new microwave. That whole decision-making process took about three nanoseconds, though. Sure, microwaves were handy under the old new normal, saving a few seconds here and there, but time moves a lot slower while sheltering in place. And those few seconds here and there are no longer all that necessary to save. We can boil a kettle of water and pour that in our cups to heat them up. We can pour milk in a saucepan and heat that over a low fire on the stove. So we really don't need a microwave anymore. I mean, it's kind of a brick of technology that is really not needed, you know, unless you want bad tasting, mushy food that resembles something you had in the past, but can't quite remember what it tasted like. Under this new normal of the virus, we can leave the microwave oven in the dustbin of history, and hopefully we won't have any need for them in the next new normal when the virus takes a breather before potentially coming back with a vengeance. Hopefully in the next new normal, we won't be living like in the old new normal, where time was so precious because so much of it had been consumed by capital that we needed bad food fast in order to up our caloric consumption so we would have the energy to continue working for the man. 
Maybe the next new normal can be a time when we don't desperately need to quickly jam foodstuffs into our faces while at our desks while working, having what some brazenly call lunch but what barely resembles a meal at all, maybe in the next virus interim, we can all have the time to take a deep breath and enjoy it without pain, without the worry of work always hanging over us 24-7, forced to eat pre-processed food, that is created more for distribution than human consumption, which can be quickly cooked and easily devoured without the worrisome encumbrance of taste getting in the way so we can get back to our precarious life of always being on the clock. Because if we get out of this alive and we go back to the old new normal, I just may want to stick my head in the oven and get it over with. And you can't do that with a microwave. When it comes down to it, I guess that microwave oven is nothing more than a reminder that this is hell. Coming up, what happens next? After the virus has been slowed, even halted, there's going to be a next new normal. And we better start thinking about what that next new normal is fast because the right already has a plan for us and it is very scary. Alex will also have the rest of your answers to last week's question from hell, which is, But what about the landlords? But what about the landlords? Our favorite answer gets 10 This Is Hell subvertising stickers. And uh, now, live from the nightmare, This Is Hell. We were told back in the early 1990s that it was the end of history and nothing would ever change again with capitalism going unchallenged ad infinitum. Then history kept happening. Crises kept mounting. And tragedies started piling up. Now the global pandemic is proving yet again that history never ends and nothing is is forever, even capitalism. Here to help us consider our past, our present, and our future. So that's not that much to consider. Remy, Debs, Bruno, and Medway Baker are co-authors of the Cosmonaut magazine article, The End of the End of History, COVID-19 and 21st Century Fascism, which you can find at cosmonaut.blog, and you can follow Cosmonaut at cosmonautmag. Remy is a freelance journalist and copy editor. Welcome to This Is Hell, Remy. Hey there, Chuck. How's it going? Good. And Medway is a writer and editor at Cosmonaut Magazine, also a member of Socialist Action Canada and the New Democratic Party's or NDP's Socialist Caucus. Welcome to This Is Hell, Medway. Hi, thanks. You Happy can, to be here. You can follow Medway on Twitter at Midway Medway, which is a great Twitter handle and very easy to remember. <laughs> uh, let's start with you, Medway. Uh, your article starts with a quote uh, by the late economist Milton Friedman, which is odd, but was great, with Friedman saying, only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When that crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. That, I believe, is our basic function to develop alternatives to existing policies to keep them alive and available and until the politically impossible becomes the politically inevitable. Medway, what do you think the likelihood is that we will go back to what people are calling normal? We will simply be acting like nothing happened in, say, 18 months, maybe two years. We will be doing exactly what we were doing in 2019, that we can go back to what is called normal. What do you think is the likelihood we can do that? Pretty much zero, I think. (laughs) It's, uh, I mean, this is a crisis on the scale of, I think, the the Great Depression. Um, and I mean, they, I, I, I make a lot of, I mean, I, I'm a sort of amateur historian, so I, I make a lot of parallels to the interwar 
um, in, uh, you know, to, to the present era in, in my own head and in my um, articles, because that was a period when there was just ma a, a total massive shift in the entire world system. Um, with you know the the end of World War One, the Russian Revolution, uh, the you know total redrawing of the borders in Europe, and then the Great Depression, and politics was never the same after World War One, and again after World War Two. And I think we're we're in one of those transitionary periods where we're at a crossroads, and there's no turning back. Remy, how do we view history differently? when we view a point in the past as normal, as something we want to return to a time when we were great, and if we simply recreate that, we can make America great again. What happens when we uh, view, his, view the future as just replicating history? Well, I think, you know, it leads not only into uh, terrible strategy and bad politics, but it's, it's just a project based on an impossibility. Um, you know, the... It, it, given historical conjunctures, right, depend for their existence on the conditions at hand and, uh, you know, make make the world from those. And uh, you're simply just not going to get back to. I mean, that's the thing that I think about with, you know, Sanderista politics. And, I, you know, I played the part of a Bernie bro because I thought it served a purpose. But it kind of demonstrates, right, that that political project is a callback to uh, an economic and geopolitical and ecological set of circumstances that just no longer exists and can't be called back into existence. I mean, for a number of reasons, I don't think we could resuscitate uh, robust social provision or social democratic reforms. I don't think that would be a possibility. And just like I don't think it would be a possibility to return to, uh, you know, uh, the circumstances of the, the pre-World War One era, you know, a, a world of colonial empires. I just don't think that those are among the options available to us right now. And the options are vanishingly few. They're being whittled down to really, I think, socialism or barbarism. Medway, uh, you both write, as COVID-19 ra rages through the shell of a global civilization systematically ravaged by five decades of catabolic capitalism, the facades of processual stability are crumbling and revealing in their place a crossroads for human society. The illusion of stability and robustness projected upon the delicate systems of production, distribution, exchange, and social reproduction has long been predicted to evaporate. Is the economy, Medway, is the economy collapsing? Is capitalism collapsing because it was all an illusion? And what do you mean by capitalism being an illusion? I know that people have had this discussion many times in the past, but I just want to make sure that our, under, our uh, listeners understand exactly how you feel about capitalism being an illusion, Medway. Well, I think it, it's capitalism is especially modern finance capital is something that really just relies on a sort of myth i think and i mean that myth is um solely being chipped away and uh and, and really it it um relies on just a sort of you know that the, the mentality of there is no alternative is the only way that that myth persists um maybe uh remy has something to say about that more but yeah, Remy. I was just let me just follow up on that real quick with Remy. If enough people, Remy, if enough people believe in the illusion, can capitalism work? If we all have faith, can we have a resurrection of the same capitalism as it existed up until the virus? Can faith, belief in capitalism, overcome the shortcomings of capitalism? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know that you're going to be able to resurrect, um, you know, an economic system functioning exactly as it did before, because you just simply can't get back, uh, you know, what you can't get back overnight, certainly what what's been destroyed. Uh, you know, all the all the foundations of, of capital accumulation that are being crunched up by this crisis, you know, and spat out, you're not just going to get back, you know, 10, 15, 20 million jobs, you're not just going to be able to do that. Now, the question of belief, I think that all stable or relatively stable social systems, right, do depend on, uh, you know, a, a, a shared, a collective belief in uh, what it is that we're doing and the necessity of it, right? And I think, a lot of people, you know, refer to this as ideology or, you know, uh, uh, fetishism or, you know, alienation. You know, there are all kinds of terms and theoretical constructs that have been built to try to understand how it is that we all kind of get uh, fooled into thinking that uh, reality at present is normal and is uh, the way things have to be and that it's not possible to imagine them being different because why would you, right? And so anyway, to answer your question more directly, right, I don't believe um, that we're getting back uh, to uh, the the relative stability, which was actually, if we'll recall, horrible <laughs> and highly unstable. <laughs> yeah, that's the part I don't get either. Why do we want to rush back to that new normal of precarity, <laughs> of uh, weak labor organizing? Uh, Medway, you write the task of so tasks of socialists spectating from within the structure as it has been stripped down to the girding beams and beyond are to clear-headedly analyze the conjuncture at which we find ourselves, identify the opportunities and dangers that conjuncture creates, and to organize at the weak points which yield the greatest leverage for reusing the rubble that results. As I was saying earlier, you're a member of Social Socialist Action Canada and the New Democratic Party's or NDP's Socialist Caucus. What should Bernie Sanders or even Jeremy Corbyn supporters be doing under COVID? What should they be doing with the energy they put into those campaigns now under COVID? You know, I think that the key really is to focus not on um, the sort of electoral arena, but to focus on rebuilding a strong workers movement, um, rebuilding the trade unions, rebuilding, you know, uh, workers, uh, civil uh, organizations, so that, you know, the, the working class can uh, construct the uh, embryo of, you know, a, a new society and actually put forward a real alternative to um, our, you know, present capitalist system. Um, and, and I do think that, you know, engaging in the electoral arena does have a limited use. But I think one of the mistakes that the left has been making for a long time, you know, in, in many countries, uh, not just the United States, um, is to focus solely on official politics and, and the electoral arena. And I think that, you know, that that can only really work if we do have a strong workers movement that can actually put pressure on the state and then the political arena. Remy, you too also write that the suite of contingencies within which the havoc has arisen and within which it is doing its work have never before existed. To what extent were we unprepared not only because of the actions of President Trump or Prime Minister Johnson, but because the set of circumstances that had been built up, what makes up our globalized capitalist society, were highly vulnerable to this kind of crisis or disaster. What does it say about capitalism 
when it does seem vulnerable to this crisis? Can we just blame Johnson and Trump or is there something bigger at work? Well, it's meaningless to blame Johnson and Trump or Bezos and Gates or, you know, pick your target. Right. It's it's meaningless. You can do that if you want, I suppose. But it doesn't accomplish anything and it doesn't illuminate anything. Right. So the thing that's unique here is not that there's a pandemic. That's not historically unprecedented. It's not that there's capitalism. It's not that there's resource extraction. Uh, The things that are unique about this moment, um, I would contend. Right. um, Are that for the first time, you know, capitalism has gone global and the mechanisms and systems that comprise what we kind of refer to and think about as capitalism are actually these really complex and extended and distributed and diffuse uh, uh, systems, right, within a larger system that are actually really delicate because they're highly optimized to capital accumulation and nothing else. Um, So when we have global value chains, you know, and I would recommend folks read... um, a book by John Smith called Imperialism in the 21st Century that talks a lot about this. What, what we have is an extremely fragile system. And what we're seeing also, because, and I, you know, this is not news to anybody who's a, a Marxist or a, a leftist, right? It, we have a, a rate of profit, overall average rate of profit, which is really just bumping up against zero. Um, and it, it can't sustain these sorts of, of shocks and the maintenance of uh, the kind of society that, uh, you know, we could think of as like, you know, high social democratic capitalism. Uh, it can't do that for long. And it would take an exogenous shock like this, right, to kind of uh, rip that mask off and kind of crumble the thing down. And I think that that this is probably the beginning of something like that. I think that we can call uh, high neoliberalism probably as good as dead. Um, Now, I don't know what you get out of that. And that was really my point in writing this, right, is that we really need to look at what's going on here. And if we're going to have any chance at having influence over what results, we need to really be on that right now, because this is a signal crisis. I think this is like a uh, this presages more to come in this century, because as your uh, guest and uh, somebody I look up to a lot, Rob Wallace, has remarked, you know, the way that we produce food and commodities, the way we structure our civilizations, right, it will produce more, you know, pathogenic threats. Uh, it's going to produce ecological degradation and all sorts of fun stuff that we really need to be ready for and thinking about in this, uh, what I think will shape up to be a long 21st century. But Medway, why do we seemingly tolerate these continued crises of capitalism? And is that tolerance sustainable for much longer? We've had crisis after crisis after crisis over the last 20, 30, 40 years, and we continue to just keep moving forward and wanting to stay in that normal. So why do we tolerate these crises of capitalism, Medway? And is that tolerance sustainable? Well, you know, I think that, I mean, the the workers' movement has just been so beaten down uh, over the past several decades. And, I mean, the the collapse of the the USSR and the Eastern Bloc, you know, did herald an end to a historical era um, in which, you know, the, the workers' movement in much of the world was very powerful. And we had, you know, states uh, covering a massive part of the world um, that called themselves socialist. And, you know, really, I think that the the early 90s was a victory for uh, capitalism and for, you know, a sort of um, 
liberal uh, consensus. And, you know, so so I think that workers all over the world were kind of, you know, you know, beaten down and sort of convinced that there is no other other alternative um, to capitalism. And I think that what we're seeing now is that, you know, there, there, well, there's the sort of, you know, like in, in the Hobbesian sense, um, the the Leviathan um, that we, you know, that this society that we just can't uh, challenge, it, it, it's unchallengeable. And we're seeing it sort of begin to teeter. And I think that, you know, the only way out is for a new sort of sovereignty to arise. And that sovereignty is going to have to harness, um, you know, that the mass uh, popular sentiment of the people, you know, that the, the masses of working people and whatnot, uh, who, you know, are beginning to see that there are cracks in the system and maybe there's an alternative. But I think that the sort of populist right is um, has been far more successful in harnessing popular sentiment for its own political ends, far far more successful than the left has been. Um, and this is really why we need to, you know, focus on building a workers' movement and uh, c- constructing a socialist alternative. Remy, you and Midway also point, Medway also point out uh, the increasingly costly machinery of capital production has been either left to rot or cannibalized in favor of an ethereal finance economy. The tools of leverage and speculation are used to direct the operation of the global system as a whole, while little of substance is produced in the formerly unrivaled center of commodity production. So, Remy, more than anything, is COVID revealing that our economy does not produce what we need to live to to survive? And what happens when an economy is created that is not centered on fulfilling humanity's basic needs and instead is focused on satisfying financial markets? Well, you know, I would certainly hope that that's being revealed. I, I think that you know one of the one of the opportunities here. I mean, it's it's a devastating uh, crisis, but it's it also contains within it you know an opportunity. Is that what's being demonstrated? And I think we wrote a little bit about this in the article, right? Is exactly what uh, exactly who uh, performs labor that is productive of value and who uh, realizes value versus who moves it around in a way, you know, that basically who operates money factories. Uh, and, you know, we went, I, you know, I say this in organizing quite a lot. Uh, we went from unskilled labor to essential workers pretty damn quick. Uh, and I think, you know, that that should reveal something, right? That that should reveal something that you don't need to spend five years studying theory uh, and political economy to to realize, right? And, um so that presents an alter, uh, an opportunity, but I also think it's worth thinking about uh, the fact that the only way that we can respond to something like this or to really any of the mounting ecological challenges that we're going to face as a human species uh, is internationalist. That, that the only sorts of solutions, they're all internationalist. They have to be addressed. You cannot address them on a country-by-country basis, right? So you see figures like Donald Trump uh, trying to craft a backroom deal with a German uh, company or, or a set of scientists who are working on a vaccine to get exclusive access to it. Well, guess what, dumbass? That doesn't do anything. <laughs> if one country has a vaccine, that does nothing uh, for a global economy. It does nothing for uh, human Im- immunity uh, uh, in the broader picture, right? So I think these things are all sort of becoming clear to folks. You know, the fact that you can um, evaporate 
you know, billions of dollars from the stock market overnight and nothing changes in the real world and in the real economy uh, should probably tell people something. And the fact that you can print a trillion dollars a day and say that we will print absolutely as much money as you need, you know, we're going to mint two quadrillion dollar coins or whatever, right, should probably tell folks that, you know, what money is, is, a, a you know, a form of social control, right? It's a representation of social power over other people's labor. And I'm not, you know, trying to get into big bong rip stuff about, oh, money's not real, man. All I'm saying is that it, this probably does kind of uh, lift the veil for a lot of folks uh, about, you know, what, just on a common sense level, right, what priorities uh, we want to have. And uh, that is something that we can have control over uh, if we do the things that create control and power. And that's, I think, the, the main takeaway uh, that I hope people are having from this. And I think they are. I mean, there's a huge movement for uh, a, a, a mass strike a co you know, campaign of coordinated actions starting on May Day. There have been uh, wildcat strikes in many, many critical sectors, you know, solidarity strikes, you know, G uh, GE workers, uh, or it might have been GM workers, striking to, uh, because they wanted to be producing ventilators, not jet engines. You know, uh, it must have been GM. Uh, in any case, yeah, so I think we can see this, and I think it's going to probably accelerate, uh, particularly once... Uh, you know, world leaders are like, okay, crisis is over, you know, get back to work, folks. And they're, you know, and the evictions start rolling in and there are no jobs. I think that's really when we're going to see the main fallout from this. And hopefully when we're going to see uh, uh, spike in coordinated action. But Medway, Remy uh, was mentioning strikes and I'm just going to play devil's advocate. Why not? This is hell. So, uh, what do you do you think strikes are a medway do you think strikes are a good strategy at this time when we are under a virus when we do need things to work when we do need things like supplies in order to continue surviving is a general strike right now is there a potential for it to backfire in the faces of the people who do want to start a new and better and improved workers movement well you know i I don't think that strikes are a strategy in themselves, but they're certainly a very powerful tactic uh, for, um, you know, the the left and the workers' movement. I think that's been proven throughout history, time and time again, um, because it's precisely, you know, the the ability to turn the economy on and off that does give, um, you know, the the workers' movement a lot of leverage, uh, and. You know, I think that it's, uh, you know, the ability to sort of say, okay, well, we can just, you know, take over um, the economy for, you know, for, for, for the workers to say we can just take over the economy. That's very powerful. And I think that, you know, that that's something that, that's a possibility that a lot of people had just forgotten about um, for a long time. And it's something that we're seeing a revival of, uh, which is very exciting um, because, you know, we're, we're seeing workers say, hey, wait a minute, you know, you're saying that we're the essential workers, um, but, you know, we're, we have no control over our work conditions, we have no control over what we're producing, um, you know, so, but, but, you know, we could just do this ourselves, um, and we can, you know, stop, uh, giving, you know, you, our boss, uh, our 
uh, labor to exploit and, um, you know, do it ourselves. And, and of course, you know, I don't think that there's going to be some, you know, massive uh, revolution coming out of this. But I do think that uh, what this crisis is teaching people is that, you know, ordinary workers do have a lot of power. And, you know, even if you know, the uh, uh, strike action, you know, happens and sort of, you know, flops, it's going to be a pivotal moment in the reconstitution of a workers movement that, you know, one day might be able to actually challenge the, you know, sort of uh, capitalist, you know, ruling class for power. Remy, your article was written during the debate over the stimulus package. And at the time, the two of you wrote, there have been at least three calls from prominent figures in our or in or adjacent to the Republican Party for social provision from the stimulus to those deemed to be real Americans. Meanwhile, Mitt Romney, the billionaire Mormon, ex-presidential candidate and longtime denizen of the lounges of Republican Party officialdom, last week called for a thousand, this is prior to the uh, stimulus again, called for a thousand dollar payment to offset the financial ruin in store for half of U.S. workers in wake of the indefinite suspension of their employment. Crypto fascist. Senator Tom Cotton today decried the ersatz and indirect system of tax credits used for social provision, calling instead for a similar UBI-esque policy. While at first glance, these programs appear to be much needed and overdue relief for millions of Americans barely clinging to the economic margins, they're very likely the opening shots in a coming salvo of right populist political sentiment, a salvo which will certainly vouchsafe the irrelevancy of any left movement and maybe even violently suppress such a movement for generations. Remy, how could these programs, how could UBI undermine the left for generations? Well, you know, I I get in trouble uh, uh, for sticking to this point, but I do um, vehemently. (laughs) Any uh, program of, of social provision that is helmed by um, the economic ruling class or, you know, their representatives, and I do say their representatives, uh, in official politics will not accrue to the benefit of working class power, right? They will, uh, to the extent that they even materialize in a meaningful way that can really alleviate the, the, the suffering and difficulties that working people have, they'll be controlled, uh, by people who are not your friends. These are the same people, right? Who, literally survive by extracting our time on earth as living people and our labor, right? So, and it's not just because, oh, these people are mean that these programs will be harmful. It's it's because, first of all, um, they are always operated not as universal social goods, but as exclusionary mechanisms to to kind of signal uh, who is in and who is out, right? And um, I think that, you know, for the coming, you know, political situation and world environmental situation that we're going to have, we're going to see more sort of exclusionary mechanisms like this that will lead up to what some people think of as like an eco-fascist or exterminist uh, way of of doing politics and resource distribution, right? Uh, additionally, UBI proposals always provide, um, you know, a bare minimum, really a starvation wage replacement. And what the effect of that will be, I would think inevitably would be, uh, will be to go ahead and, and informalize uh, and and sort of um, tr- turn these populations of people who get this bare social provision into sort of surplus populations. Because let's face it, it, it 
in the post-manufacturing era uh, in the in the imperial core in the U.S. and in Western Europe, right? When we're not manufacturing and producing value directly, we have a, a whole cavalcade of bullshit jobs, um, right? And and things that don't need to be done and things that don't really produce anything. And you know, there's real really no reason that's essential to the system of production and distribution that we have that a lot of these positions need to exist. So if there's a program which creates a way. Uh, to eliminate those and make these firms even, you know, quote unquote, leaner and more optimized and efficient, um, they will go for that. And what we're what we'll see is what has happened, you know, in a lot of uh, the periphery, right, in the global south, right. You'll have mass ghettoization. You'll have people who uh, survive on, you know, a pittance uh, in informal economy kinds of ways, and you'll see the existing provisions of social goods and resources stripped even further. Although, you know, there's not much more that could be taken away, but you will see more and more taken away if we do get a UBI. Uh, and additionally, it'll be something that we have to struggle over every two, four, and six years, right? Just like we have to fight over cuts to Social Security or the Postal Service or Medicare, Medicaid, or in, you know, in the UK, you have to fight every year over whether or not the NHS is going to be gutted and privatized. It'll be another thing like that. I think it's a huge boondoggle. We should not come cap in hand to the capitalist class and beg for scraps. What we should be focusing on is building the power that we would need to demand our cut and to run our economy and our lives right in the way that we could. Uh, Medway, uh, just following up on Remy, uh, you both write about how this changes the citizen into more of a shareholder, UBI does. We've had this controversy and discussion here in the States about uh, citizens being seen as consumers first before they're being seen as citizens. Medway, how do you think our relationship with government changes when we become shareholders in the government instead of just citizens? Yeah, that's a, a very um, important point uh, because uh, that the that um, what we're what I'm quoting from uh, with the talk about citizens being shareholders is um, from uh, C. H. Douglas, who came up with this economic theory of social credit, um, which was channeled into a right populist political program, um, and it's uh, you know. I, I think it's important to distinguish between social democratic reform and right populist reform for one crucial reason, and that reason is the uh, role of class struggle in those reform movements. So, you know, and I, I, I see social democracy, of course, you know, social democracy, I don't see it as revolutionary, and I see myself as a revolutionary, but social democracy is a project which harnesses class struggle in order to forge a more humane capitalism. Um, whereas I think that right populist reform is a project which sort of unites workers with the middle class um, against a vague sort of elite uh, in order to stifle class struggle and um, destroy, you know, any class independence that the working class has. And so, you know, making citizens, you know, to, to return to, to the question at hand, you know, turning citizens into shareholders in the state and in the economy um, sort of, you know, is, is a project which is meant to um, destroy the working class as a working class and sort of, you know, create a sense that we're all in this together in order to uh, clamp down on class struggle. 
Uh, let me just follow up with that with you on that, uh, Medway. Uh, you write the victory of right-wing populism in Alberta. Canada destroyed the capacity of labor activists and socialists to have any success for generations in uniting the workers and petty bourgeois against the banks and the political establishment. Social credit simultaneously staved off a threat, the threat of a genuine workers' movement, which could pursue its own independent interests. Do, Medway, do workers knowingly give up their own interests in support of blaming the banks and the political establishment for their suffering? And if so, why is that blame more attractive than pursuing their own interests? No, of course not. I mean, you know, these right populist uh, movements, you know, portray themselves as pursuing um, the interests of the working class. Um, But what they do is they... um, they destroy the notion of a working class as a class in and for itself. And they, you know, construct a narrative of, you know, the vague people against the vague elites. Um, And, you know, it's a very attractive notion that, you know, all of us, you know, people who are suffering down here, you know, we're all in this together and, you know, um, and, and we can unite to, you know, take back what, you know, is rightfully ours. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's a myth that serves to, um, you know, it, it, it serves to stifle class struggle, as I said. And, you know, like, of course, you know, no one consciously is giving up um, a movement that fights for, for their interests. You know, everyone's always trying to pursue their own interests, I think. Um, but, you know, what, what, what we need to do is expose how these right populist movements aren't actually working in the interests of the working class. You know, even if they do, you know, provide benefits for certain sectors of the working class, ultimately, they undermine the, the, the ability of, you know, workers to uh, fight for our own interests. And, you know, at the end of the day, it just serves um, to perpetuate the capitalist order. That's, Can yeah. I jump in on that? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, but it was just, I was just going to say that was a very enlightening answer. But go ahead, Remy. Thank oh, you. I'm sorry to cut you off, Chuck. I just wanted to say, you know, I think it's important to remember just piggybacking on what Medway is saying here, um, that it, you know, let's emphasize this, this. These programs, right, this rhetoric of, of right populism does not actually end up materializing in a way that benefits people actually working people right it what it does instead is it it removes our capacity uh to to self-determine it removes it usually violently represses any attempt uh to uh cohere sort of power uh from below and and what it ends up doing is uh you know basically restraining the ability of working people to fight for themselves and so these things do not end up actually you know, benefiting people, right? The fundamental equation of what we get in exchange for what we give our labor and our time on earth does not change without working class power from below. The The fundamental equation does not change. It'll take different forms. Uh, you know, the what we get side of that equation will take different forms and, and maybe be shuffled around a little bit here versus there, but it doesn't change. It doesn't change. But let me just uh, ask you real quick here, Remy. Are the two presidential candidates offering uh, what you believe are two impossibilities? And is that what the public actually wants? Are our choices, because you were mentioning this impossibilities of the two choices before, are our choices either the myth 
of going back to the high profits of the mythical 1990s or, as you described, Biden's last-ditch resuscitation of the third-way characteristic of the late 2000s, which you also see as impossible. Because if those are our two choices, what does it say about our future and what does it say about us? That is, that's, I don't know, that's all we're demanding right now. Well, I think it says something very hopeful. Um, you know, when the present becomes impossible and intolerable at the same time, uh, then the future starts uh, being thought about again. And so I would say that what we're seeing is um, maybe Mark Fisher would have liked to have seen it. I don't think the future is canceled anymore. Um, and when, like I said, when the present becomes impossible, right, rupture becomes inevitable. Um, and so the question then becomes, does it break left or break right? Not, does it break? Uh, and so that that, you know, history, I think, uh, has has been uncanceled. <laughs> I have uh, one last question for each of you. And what we do with all of our guests is our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question that we hate to ask, you might hate to answer or our audience will hate your response. Let's start with you, Medway. We've been speaking with Remy Debs Bruno and Medway Baker, co-authors of the Cosmonaut Magazine article, The End of the End of History, COVID-19 and 21st Century Fascism. Medway, the political transformation that you would like to see, do you think it's more likely to happen with Donald Trump as president of the United States or Joe Biden as president of the United States? Is, would it reinvigorate the left and activists with another Trump term in office or with uh, Joe Biden in office? Is there more possibilities for the left to actually pressure and push him into a direction that they want to have? So do you think Trump or Biden is better for a left transformation of the United States? Oh, God, there, there's no good answer to this. Um, I think that, you know, they're both, you know, awful alternatives. And I think that they'll both continue to um, mount an assault against the workers' movement um, as it, you know, re reemerges. Um, Trump has, you know, recently, well, and, and, you know, just sort of throughout his term, um, mounted a lot of um, reforms that are aimed at weakening the workers' movement and, and the trade unions. Um, and so, you know, there, there's a part of me that says, well, then, you know, clearly we need to get rid of him to, you know, protect these, you know, meager um, rights that exist for workers. But on the other hand, I don't think that uh, Joe Biden would reverse um, any of those reforms. And I don't think that he would, you know, do anything for the workers' movement. And I also think that, um, you know, a, a victory for the Democratic Party um, under Joe Biden might, you know, sort of create this idea that, oh, you know, we, we can go back to the way things were, we can go back to the Obama era, which I think would be dangerous for the left. Ultimately, though, you know, I think that, um, you know, it, it doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, I think it's inevitable that Trump's going to win the election. Um, but, you know. Who can say? Yeah, on that happy note. Uh, also, one last question. <laughs> one last question from hell for you, Remy. Remy Debs Bruno. Uh, this is really an awful question. Um, so, I know. Everybody knows. Fascism is horrible. It's awful. It's absolutely awful. We shouldn't have it. Remy, can fascism 
save us from the virus? Oh God, Chuck. <laughs> um no no i don't think so it can thank god you said no (laughs) it could stave off uh uh certain of some of the worst effects by being an activist state and political project which is what neoliberalism refuses to be because it's an ideology that fundamentally believes that there essentially shouldn't be a state except uh for wars and uh money printing when when the economy goes pear shaped. Um, But it is a threat that, you know, people are going to be looking for what can help us right now. They're not going to want to reject the thing that's on the table in favor of some far off in the distance, nice future that we could have one day. So it is a threat. No, it cannot help, but it can certainly give the illusion of being able to. And we need to, it's not going to come in, you know, in jack boots with a, a swastika armband. It's going to come in in a new form, uh, and we need to be wary and vigilant about what that looks like. I cannot thank both of you enough for being on our show. This article is really amazing. Rebbe Deb- Debs Bruno and Medway Baker are co-authors of the Cosmonaut Magazine article, The End of the End of History, COVID-19 and 21st Century Fascism. You can find the article at cosmonaut.blog. You can follow Cosmonaut at Cosmonaut Mag. And you can follow Medway on Twitter at Midway Medway. Thank you both so much for being on the show this morning. And we are going to be bugging you in the future to have you, both of you back on because this has been a really fascinating conversation and nobody else is having this. So thank you very much for being on our show today. Thank you I'm such a fanboy of yours. I'm so happy to be on. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I really appreciate it, Remy. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money. So you do the math. This is hell. Last week's question from hell is... But what about the landlords? But what about the landlords? And we're finally wrapping it up. The person with our favorite answer to last week's question wins 10. Count them 10. This is Hell's advertising stickers, so you too can subvert outdoor advertising with the words, this is Hell. As we're all living in Hell right now, what better time to remind others that, yes, this is Hell. You can still leave your answer in the next 22 seconds to last week's question from Hell at our Facebook page. Tweet it to us. Email it to us. But you have to do it now because after Alex reads the rest of the answers listeners have submitted to last week's question from hell, we will be announcing last week's winner. Alex, do we have the rest of our listeners' answers to last week's question from hell? Uh, Yeah, we got one more from our friend Wrangler Steve of uh, Walmart check-in fame. And he wrote, what a way to end this question. What to say to the landlords? Sell your landlady. Wow. Wish there was one more. Wish there was one more to end that. Wow. (laughs) My answer to this week's question from hell. But what about the landlords? But what about the landlords? I don't have a landlord, so I don't want to say fuck the landlord because that would be virtue signaling. As today, we are not allowed to show our support for any group which we do not belong. So, due to fear of being labeled as someone who participates in the self-aggrandizing egotistic practice of virtue signaling, I cannot show support for tenants, and I'm not allowed to discuss rent control. Because the last thing I want to be labeled as is a liberal who virtue singles. Signals. Signals? Signals. The answers I liked the most this week were, I really liked LB saying, making the landlords one with the land. Uh, Chris saying, braise them over low heat and red wine sauce, tender and delicious. Pete, if you're going to eat me, 
May I suggest the sweetbreads? Highly recommended. It's kind of funny because I know that he's a landlord. Warren's saying they can get the unemployment website to work. They can't get the unemployment website to work either. Gorilla Gramophonics, let them eat Bitcoin. I thought that was great. Greg quoted uh, Matthew Desmond's book, Evicted Poverty and Profit in the American City. And we interviewed uh, Matt a few years ago. You should definitely, in this time of people talking about rent control and eviction and mortgages and uh, not paying rent, you should definitely go back and listen to our interview with Matt Desmond, D-E-S-M-O-N-D, which you can find at thisishell.com. Clarence saying Elizabeth Warren has a plan for them. I love Laddie saying mustache twirling ad infinitum. That was really good. Scott saying they have, have they considered picking themselves up by their bootstraps and soaring into the heavens. Uh, any that really uh, got you, Alex? I loved LB's one. Did you? Bring back to the land. <laughs> that, Love that, it. that is really good. I liked how it was concise. Trevor said, look, you can ask as much as you want, but I'm not telling you where the bodies are. That was pretty good. All right, let's go with Al B. Al, you are the winner of this week's question from hell. You have the favorite answer, I should say. Our favorite answer for this week's question from hell. So you will be getting 10 This Is Hell subvertising stickers in the mail shortly. All you have to do is contact us via Facebook. Send us a message with your mailing address. We also got this email from Chad that is very relevant to our discussion on what to do with landlords. Chad writes, the landlord thing is over, but I thought y'all would enjoy this. He wrote this to us today. Yesterday, I heard a lawnmower in my apartment community, which was odd because there was no team of landscaping contracts contractors visible. And because Jared Kushner, who bought the nice property last year with a government-backed loan, hasn't been cutting the grass. Turns out it was a resident cutting the grass in front of his building, this building, himself. The nice fire pit and gas grills installed before Kushner bought the place are marked out of order now. They had been a popular addition that drew residents out to socialize and be neighborly. We think they just don't want to refill the propane tank. Slumlord New York City tactics exported to the great state of Virginia. And I'm telling you folks, that's what we can all expect under the next four years of Trump. Profits being made through services being lost. Alex, who's on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour stream beginning at 10 in the morning, just like today's show? Well, I'm already bleeping a lot of stuff anyway on today's show, <laughs> so uh, we're going to be talking with Malcolm Harris about his book, Shit's Fucked Up and Bullshit, History Since the End of History. So when you are, when you just read the title just now, when you go bleep that, is it just going to be one long bleep? I mean, you can't even put in the, you don't bleep out everything but the up. You don't. Oh, yeah, I do. It's funnier that way. <laughs> Isn't it a pain in the ass, though? Uh, yeah, but it's also funnier, so it's kind of <laughs> worth it. <laughs> uh, I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. I want to thank Alex for producing this week's show. And thanks to both of our guests, Remy Debs Bruno and Medway Baker. They are the co-authors of the Cosmonaut Magazine article, The End of the End of History, COVID-19 and 21st Century Fascism. You can find the article at cosmonaut.blog, and you can follow Cosmonaut at Cosmonaut Mag. You can also follow Medway on Twitter at Midway Medway. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, uh, your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>